Thanks be to God. There's an outline sheet in your worship folder if you'd like to use that. Two Sundays ago in this message, uh, the message from this series, I'm a church member, and it's based on a little book by Tom Rainer. We talked about our call to pray for others, and we focused on the Apostle Paul's prayer for the believers in, in the city of Colossae, and <coughs> excuse me, that, uh, that prayer that he prayed for them centered on three key terms, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and we kind of unpacked that and talked about what that means to pray for those things in the lives of other people, our care, our prayers for others. Last Sunday, Kevin, in his message, contrasted images of the church saying that the, the church is not like a cruise ship, it's more like a battleship, the one that's outfitted for service and protection. Putting your training into action. We're not a cruise ship, we're more like a battleship. We're called to put our training into action and to serve. This morning, we conclude the series. We're taking a look at another image of the church, this time from, as Darwin's just read, from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Now, Paul continually tells his readers where to find encouragement in the midst of enormous difficulty, a world that is not easy to live within as a believer. He wants the congregation that he's writing to, and he wants this congregation, us, to apply that same knowledge, wisdom, to our understanding. And what Paul writes to them, he's really actually saying to us, it's our, a kind of a message to us today, don't forget what I taught you when I was with you. Don't forget what I taught you when I was with you. A fellow was walking down the street, he saw an advertisement for a cruise, travel agency window. The sign in the window read, cruise, $100 cash. He thought, I've got $100. I've got $100 cash right now. I'd like to go on a cruise. So he went into the office. He told the guy behind the counter that he'd like to take the $100 cruise. So he, the fellow asked for the money. When the man finished counting out the money, reached $100, he was whacked on the head, knocked out. He woke up in a barrel, floating down a river. Another guy in another barrel floated past, and as he floated past, he asked, hey, do they serve lunch on this cruise? And the guy said, well, they didn't last year. <laughs> now, it's, who said that? It's bad. That's bad. Okay? That's a good story. Okay? There's, a, there's a point. Okay? It's one thing not to know. It's one thing not to know. It's another to know and not learn. Now, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul keeps reminding the church of the various ways that the Lord's Spirit is at work, what they already knew, what they already know, what they're to learn, remember, how they're meant to live and serve. Now, Tom Rainer in his book tells us that the church is not a country club. We've been reminded that we're not a cruise ship, whether it's luxury, a barrel, or otherwise. 
And what the Apostle Paul adds to that and lets us know is that we're to gladly treasure our ministry, our service, together as the church. We're to share something in common at the deepest level of human experience. In fact, it's God who's at work within us, helping us to share, share something in common that's at the deepest level of anything that we'll ever experience as a human being this side of heaven. It's, it's our experience of God himself. Our experience of God himself. Now, being in the church together, then, is a gift from God. Rainer says, a gift that we should treasure with great joy and anticipation. Be thankful for the Lord's work in and through us as his church. What Paul begins to write about then is God's work in them, in us, his empowering work within us. But that's really not what was going on in Corinth, and that was why he was writing. Paul's ministry was under attack in Corinth. His authority as an apostle, his methods, his honesty, all of that were being questioned. And so he writes to validate his ministry. And he writes to call the church back to God. Instead of attempting a a kind of one-upsmanship, responding to his opponents, he reminds them that it's God's spirit who comes alongside us, reveals his power and weakness, that self-sufficiency, self-absorption, self-security are never solid or steady foundations for our life of service. Wrapped up in ourselves, self-absorption, self-security, none of that is a steady, sturdy foundation. And then he writes the little word, therefore. Therefore, and I've told you through the years, one of the things you want to remember is that when you read the word, therefore, you want to know what it's there for, right? Therefore, since we have this ministry, he's reminded them, It's this, the Lord's Spirit is at work to prompt us. He's at work to prompt us. That's really the first verse. We've received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now the Greek of that can mean anything from not being discouraged to not acting like a coward. We don't lose heart. Discouragement or cowardice. But all of this underscores what he's been telling them. His confidence is not in his own ability. God's Spirit is at work within us, prompting us to stay steady. When trouble comes, we always have options. When trouble comes, we have options. We can see it as an intrusion or an outrage, something to avoid or run from, deny, self-medicate with drugs or pills or alcohol. Or we can look at trouble as an opportunity to respond in specific obedience to the Lord, not losing heart not becoming discouraged or lacking in confidence, cowardice. Not losing heart, not succumbing to discouragement. It's not a teeth-clenched resignation. It's not a kind of a passive shrug, well, whatever, getting by, hey, under the circumstances, whatever. No, 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 it's none of that. It's staying the path of obedience. Jane Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction, staying the path of obedience not losing heart. But Paul goes on. He talks about the, Lord, the Lord's Spirit working to perfect us. Verse 2, we've renounced secret, shameful ways. We don't use deception. We don't distort the Word of God. Paul's opponents were attacking him. All kinds of complaints about his credentials, his history, his change in travel plans, anything to discredit him. 
He responds with a reminder that he has no hidden, no impure motives. The word distort here has to do with tampering with the merchandise in order to make it more profitable. Tampering with the merchandise in order to make it more profitable. Dishonest, Dishonest merchants diluting the wine. Change in the accuracy of the scales by merchants. And Paul's using that little word there to to illustrate what he's writing about. He says that the truth is not always easy to hear, it's not always easy to understand, and it's not always delightful. But the Word of God is honest. No distortions. We can't water it down. The path to mature character is a course for a lifetime, is what he's saying here. And it's a course that's meant to perfect us, to make us new, to make us different to make us godly, to set us apart in this world, to set us apart, not to stay apart from the world, but to move into the world with God's message of love, the gospel of Jesus. So all of this, all of this is dependent on the mercy of God, is what he's saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says, God's always at work to help us to proclaim his word. We don't preach ourselves, Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So again, Paul's reminded them that he's with them. When he was with them in Corinth, he didn't try to present the gospel with any kind of profound, eloquent phrasing. He simply just announced the truth. He declared the essential truth. What's that? Jesus' death on the cross provides life and salvation for all who believe and trust in him. That's the essential truth of the gospel. Jesus' death on the cross provides life and salvation for all who will believe and trust in him. Now, Paul's own authority was under attack. He simply says once again that he's actually under the authority of Jesus. So he's not proclaiming his own authority. He says, I'm under the authority of Jesus. And he says to his opponents, you're absolutely right. You're right. I don't amount to much. I just don't amount to much. But Jesus, hey, that's a different story. He's the one I proclaim. He's the one I serve. He's the one I live for. And he's the one that if I need to, he's the one I'll die for. His good news is my treasure. His good news is my treasure. And I'm just a, ah, I'm just a little hunk of clay. I'm just a little hunk of clay. Now what he does next is he contrasts the treasure and the container. And it's an absolutely amazing and dramatic contrast here. It's a disproportionate incongruity. Isn't that kind of fun? Have you said that somewhere along the line this past week? Well, that's a disproportionate incongruity. Guys, your wife probably said that to you at some point this week. (laughs) Okay? Uh, What's it mean? It means treasure... In a cracked pot. <laughs> okay? It's, it's like placing a, a priceless work of art into a cheap frame. It's, it's like placing a, a magnificent and exquisite jewel into a flimsy container. It, it's like putting a, a golden crown in a dusty box. Yesterday, our son-in-law, Isaac, and I were cleaning out the garage. Uh, we had uh, a number of Andy, our son's, a number of Andy's tools were in the garage. I'm not a craftsman like Andy was. 
And Isaac knows how to use them. There's all the drill press and saws and things. And, and so uh, we were loading up tools and materials that, for Isaac to use. And um, we came across on the, in the back of a shelf a little wooden box, dusty. Uh, the hinge was broken. We opened it up, and inside were pictures of Andy's son, our grandson Tristan, when he was a baby. Just a number. I've never, I'd never seen those pictures before. It was a treasure. We opened up a little, little dusty box and found a treasure. Paul says that that's what God does. He hides treasure inside us, little cracked pots, little dusty boxes, okay? just little hunks of clay. It's, a, it's an amazing thing because on the one hand, there's the magnificence of the Lord's amazing grace, and it's poured out on the likes of sinful human hearts. There's the immensity of the incredible good news of eternal life through Jesus that's entrusted to the likes of me and you, us, the church. There must be some reason. (laughs) There must be some reason, some purpose behind it. And Paul says, yes, there is. There sure is. So that the world can see that in the Christian message, in all of its victories over the world, the flesh, and the devil, in all of its triumphs of people whose lives have been amazingly transformed down through all the ages, all the sacrificing work of the mission of the church, everything that is high and holy and divine in the universe cannot be explained in terms of human skill, human virtue, human prowess, human ability. The only explanation must be God. Must be God. And Paul says, that's the contrast. That's it. That's the contrast between the treasure and the container. Now, look at what he says then about the treasure. We have this treasure. He takes the illustration from directly from Jesus' teaching. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for treasure, for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and, and bought it. Now Paul takes it this directly from Jesus. Jesus talked about a merchant, found a perfect pearl, more wonderful than he had ever dared to dream. And when he found it, he sold everything else to buy this one exquisite jewel, this pearl. Now, we're not meant to press the details to make it seem as, we, as if we buy our way into God's favor, that, as if we purchase the kingdom. That's not it. That's not the intent, and that's certainly not the truth. What Paul and Jesus want us to understand is the immense value of the message that frees us from our sin, that offers us life now and life forever that gives us the hope and the comfort of an empowering Holy Spirit living, actually living within us. Just think about the gospel then. Think about the good news of Jesus Christ and what it offers. It comes to somebody who's who's beginning to wonder if life is even worth living, and it says, take courage, take courage, I've overcome the world. And it, it, it comes to another who's weighed down over some guilt, some 
sin from the past, some wrong, and it declares your past is not only forgiven, it's forgotten. It comes to somebody who's worried or troubled or anxious about the condition of the world these days. It promises, my peace I give to you. Not like the world gives, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it even be afraid. The treasure is God's action in taking all the tragic wrong of this old, this old world, God taking that on his heart, defeating the powers of darkness, shattering the power of sin, and setting prisoners like us free. Now, that's the treasure, but then he contrasts that with the container. What about the other side of the contrast? The treasure is found where? In jars of clay, in earthen vessels. Good grief. How incongruent is that? And that's exactly what the Corinthians were saying. Corinth was a culture, culture center sophisticated city of wealth. It had an abundance of eloquent orators, countless patrons of the art, arts, hotshot sports idols. Paul comes along, bald, short, knobby need, not much to look at, not much to listen to. And then he has the absolute audacity to say, actually, folks, you know what? You're not much either. <laughs> You're not much either. You're just kind of poor, soiled creatures from the slums of sin. Pretty ordinary. Painfully bungling in the sight of Almighty God. And that's the incongruity. So what are the possible responses then? What are the possible reactions to that kind of a contrast? Well, first of all, we can decide, we can decide to kind of hoard the treasure and reject the vessel. And that's the response that says, give me all kinds of spirituality, give me spirituality, but leave the church. I do not need the church. Thank you very much. I'll take a little bit of religion. I'll take a dab of that. I'll stir them all together. I'll make my own brand of spirituality. I'll, I'll be just fine. I don't, need, I, I, I don't need all the parts and pieces, any kind of organized religion. I believe in God, but I don't need the church. <sighs> sure don't want to put myself out for anybody else. And when somebody else gets crossways with me, hey, I'll just, who, who needs that? I don't want to get involved. I don't want to serve. I don't want to get into some kind of small group. <laughs> Care. Care about somebody else's needs. Hey, I got enough stuff on my own. Uh, give myself in costly caring. Give my time, my energy, my money. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I don't need that. I just want to feel good with Jesus. Just me and Jesus. That's all I need. That's all I need, just me and Jesus. You know what Jesus says? He says, you missed it. I don't work that way. I don't work that way. That's what he says. But that's an option. Just hoard the treasure, reject the vessel. The other one is to absolutely reject the vessel, or reject the treasure. And these days, these days, we live in a world that embraces a wide-open spirituality, all kinds of multiplicity of gods, no central moral authority. Paul writes about it, the God of this world blinded the eyes, blinded the eyes of people. That's what he's writing about there. They're rejecting the treasure. Culture that says no one God has final exclusive right on my life. One true God, pfft. No, don't think so. God is a preference. God's an option. God is a preference. He's not the singular, preeminent, almighty God of my life, Lord of my life. No. 
that kind of option, the treasure gets rejected and Jesus' message is sidestepped. That's an option. There's another one, misplaced confidence in the vessel itself. That's where we begin to believe that the church is sufficient for God rather than that God should be sufficient for the church. Our strength, though, is not found in structure. It's not found in organization or budgets. The fact is, our strength will never be equal to the task, no matter what the old hymn might declare. Paul tells the Corinthians that God's power is made perfect. How? Made perfect how? Well, just get stronger. No, that's not what he writes. God's, God's, God's power is made perfect how? Where? Weakness. Weakness? Mm. Okay, that's the next option that he writes about. That's the one. He says, recognize the purpose in the weakness. Now, every one of us then is a servant of the Lord in the ups and downs, good times, good times and bad. That's what he writes, verse 7. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. What's he saying? The treasure has been entrusted to us, not by mistake, Not because nothing better is available. The treasure's within us deliberately. The treasure's within us on purpose. Because God chooses it to be so. He decides to build his kingdom, not by human strength, but by his strength working in us and then through us and empowering us through his Holy Spirit. Now the problem with the Christians in Corinth was that there was too much Corinth in the Christians. (laughs) And Paul says, put yourself in its proper place. Put yourself in its proper place and let Jesus put Jesus in his. Well, what does all this mean for us? It means that even even when during the times that I'm feeling defeated, or troubled, or terribly unlike Jesus, who called me to be his witness, no matter what, that even in that tough experience of emptying myself, the Lord can then fill me with his spirit again, and with his power cause me to be more than I could ever be apart from him. What does this mean for us? What's this mean for us? It means that God intends that we use the trouble of our lives to display his glory. Not to get mad, not to get all petulant and testy. Well, I'll just... uh. No. God means for us to use even the trouble in our lives to display his glory. What's this mean for us? It means the Lord cares more for our character than he does our comfort. What's this mean for us? It means that the power of God is unleashed when the people of God go through sorrow or suffering but still give thanks and glory to him. It means that you and I are meant to serve the Lord in ministry, in service, in useful work dedicated to his glory. We're thankful for the gift of salvation and then we show and live that thankfulness as church members in appreciation, love, devotion, honor, forgiveness, encouragement, 
hospitality, prayer, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, giving ourselves our time, our energy, showing up to teach little kiddos, going to a hospital room if somebody's ill or dying, speaking out for justice, caring for somebody else, all the ways and means that you and I find ourselves just day by day through all the ups and downs of life, just being his vessel. As vessels, we pour God's spirit, the spirit's gift of loving service out under the hurts and ills of society. We're poured out into the life of our culture. Our lives are poured out as vessels. As vessels, we're poured out into the lives of the folks that are around us. We're not perfect. Not a one of us. Clay pots leak. (laughs) They chip. They aren't all that attractive. By design, they are not ornamental, but meant to be functional and to serve a purpose. Look at how Paul says it in Romans. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. What's he saying? Our gifts belong to each other. So we want to humbly, gratefully present ourselves to serve the needs of a whole body in ways that are most helpful. As believers, church members, we're called to a local body. As believers, we're called to a local body of church membership. Membership. Membership means where, that's where we're united. We're united and we're committed to one another. Membership where our Christian character is is shaped and transformed. Membership, where our spiritual gifts are, are developed and exercised. Membership, where we pray for each other and then we pray for the world that Jesus died to save. And we do this all as his members, members of his body, we do this all through all the seasons of life and faith. If we do not grasp this mission, if we do not grasp this mission embodied in the church, we are missing the very heart of Jesus' plan. And so, our imperfect humanity is no hindrance to God's holy purposes. And what all this says to us is that our flaws and our scars, our chips and cracks and imperfections actually allow the presence of our all-sufficient God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to leak out. just leak. You can take it as a little motto. Leak through the week. (laughs) 
Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we've been shown your mercy in Jesus. Every one of us here wants to receive that mercy to respond, accept, rely solely on Jesus' love for us, his sacrifice on the cross. Individually, we need you. As a church, we're nothing without you. You take our weaknesses, our imperfections, and you make of us something that's useful in bringing others joy and peace and hope, life that only you can give. And so use us, Lord. May we always know that life, salvation, church membership are precious gifts. Help us to leak grace and to drip blessing and to flow the comfort of your empowering Holy Spirit. That's our prayer. And all the little cracked pots said, Amen. 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 Amen.